0: following message from pastor kit johnson comes to you from life point baptist church in apple valley california where we pray that god's word is a real blessing to you ezra three this morning Uh, ezra three it's a rather short chapter and so uh, i'd like to begin uh, by reading the entire chapter Ezra 3 1 says, Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua the son of Jozadak and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified. Because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons, and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord. That were consecrated from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple had not, yet, had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrenians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cabmiel. And his sons and the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad, with their sons and the brothers and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good For his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. A big part of being an adult is accepting the fact that many things in life are not easy. Right? They're inconvenient. They're costly. And sometimes they're really painful to do. And yet we do them anyway because they matter, because they're really important. So so for example, maybe you've got a a deadline coming up at work. It's a big deadline and right as you're coming up to this this deadline, you you find out that a friend is in in terrible need and so you drop everything and you go and you give a day to, to help out this friend and then you spend several nights hardly sleeping so that you can meet this deadline. Or maybe, you know, as a parent, when your kid gets sick at night, it doesn't matter how tired you are, how lousy you feel, or, or, or what obligations you have the next day. Your kids matter, so you get out of bed and you take care of them. Or, or maybe it's that a brother in Christ needs to be confronted. And, and, and if you can challenge him about his sin, you know that you are stepping on a hornet's nest. And yet you put on your big boy pants and you say what needs to be said because this person matters. So so many of the most important duties in life are hard. They're not easy. But we do them anyway because they really matter. And that's exactly what we see here in Ezra chapter 3. So on the one hand, this is a chapter that is filled with Excitement and with historical significance because the Jews are reestablishing the sacrifices and the festivals that God instituted by Moses on Mount Sinai, and they are also rebuilding the temple that Solomon built. So, so there's not much that is more significant as a Jew than what they are doing right here, and yet, on the other hand. They're also facing real world problems, like putting food on the table and a shelter over your head and not being destroyed by hostile neighbors. So those things matter as well, right? And yet the Jews understood that worship matters. And therefore, they walked by faith, they gritted their teeth, and they did what God had called them to do. And in the process, they're going to teach us in this chapter that worship matters, even if it requires that we do hard things. Because ultimately, God is my greatest need. There is nothing in life that is more important than that I am pleasing to Him and I am near to Him and His grace. And so Ezra 3 uh, describes two endeavors by these returnees Uh, to restore their relationship to God. And so the first endeavor, which takes up verses 1 through 6, is that Israel restored Mosaic worship. So Israel restored Mosaic worship. Now, it's important that we grasp the significance of these events within God's broader plan of redemption. Right? So so this story, uh, this chapter takes place roughly around 536 B.C. All right? But but to really appreciate what's happening here, we have to back up some 900 years to Mount Sinai where God formed the nation of Israel by giving them the law of Moses. I think most of us are familiar with that story. So, so Israel's at Mount Sinai, God comes down and, and He speaks the law of God to Moses. And the most important aspect of the law was that God created a system of worship whereby Israel could draw near to God. And they could have a relationship with Him. And that worship system was built around a central place of worship. Of course, initially, originally it was the tabernacle. It was a traveling tent that they would take wherever they went. But once David was established as Israel's king, and God said, that they were to build him a permanent home in the city of Jerusalem. So David did exactly that. He brought the ark into the city of Jerusalem. And then his son Solomon built a glorious temple, which Israel completed a right, exactly, actually, in 960 B.C. So 960 B.C., they complete this temple. And that's where Israel worshipped God for roughly 400 years. It was the center of everything. But of course, we've talked about the fact the last couple of weeks that that all of that ended very abruptly in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed the temple and they carried most of the Jews away into captivity. Now folks, that's a big deal for the Jews because because they're living before the cross. and, And so once they lost their temple, they could no longer offer sacrifices and really, they couldn't fully observe the feasts that, that God had called them uh, to, to practice. So in a very real sense, they lost the presence of God because they drew near to God through the temple and through the sacrifices and the festivals that they observed there. But, but of course, we saw last week that in Ezra 1-2 through 2, that, that God began to move. And and so 42,360 Israelites came home. And and, and we went through chapter 2 really quickly last week. So so I think it's worthwhile for us just to read the ending of chapter 2. Look at verses 68 through 70. So so they come back from Babylon. They make this huge journey across the desert. They arrive in the city, it says in verse 68, some of the heads of fathers' households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their city. So, so they make this long journey. And we said last week it probably took them roughly four months to make this long journey from Babylon across the desert back to, Jeru- or back to Judea. And, and when they get there, the whole group of them goes immediately to Jerusalem, and they all go to the Temple Mount. And, and they, they park there for a moment. They, they rejoice in what God's done they collect an offering, it says, for the, building of the or rebuilding of the temple. And then the text says that they scatter to their ancestral lands. Now, now that's significant, and it's worth noting that, that, that most of the people at this point probably did not live in Jerusalem. In fact, later in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is going to have to make the people take turns staying in Jerusalem. Because there's so few residents in the city, there's not enough people to guard it. And, and probably uh, the reason for that is that when the Babylonians came in, they basically wiped out the people that lived in Jerusalem. So they don't have any descendants to send back into the land. Most of the Jews who remained were, were people whose, whose, whose origin is in the cities surrounding Jerusalem. So, so after they have this assembly... They all go back to their ancestral lands. And of course, they're not going home to you know furnished homes with a full pantry and and a and a bin full of grain. No, instead, they're returning home to to lands that had lain desolate for for years. And so, you know, you can imagine they come home to roofs caved in. There's little trees and brush growing up in their fields and Their barns are torn up and it's a mess. You know, and there's there's not a grocery store down the street or or anything like that. And so they go to work, rebuilding their lives and rebuilding their homes and and preparing their fields for planting. And then chapter 3, verse 1 says that in the seventh month they reassembled in Jerusalem. Now now we don't know exactly what the what the time uh, or what distance of time there is between the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. So, so the text doesn't tell us exactly uh, when they arrived home. It could have been up to seven months earlier, uh, maybe three, probably more like six is, is what a lot of people guess. But, but regardless, life is a long way from normal. I mean, they have not harvested their first crop yet. They're probably a long way from rebuilding their lives and, and, and all these things, And yet, on the seventh month, the text says that they all reassemble in Jerusalem. And the reason they picked the seventh month is because, well, the seventh month, first of all, is the month in the Jewish calendars called Tishri, and it would extend from roughly our mid-September to mid-October. So that's the time of year we're thinking here. And it was a very important month to the Jews. In fact, it was the climax of the Jewish religious calendar. So, so the first day of Tishri was, was always set aside as a Sabbath rest. Even if it wasn't a Saturday, they always set aside the first of Tishri as, as a Sabbath. And then the tenth of Tishri was the Day of Atonement, the most uh, significant, the most holy day in the religious scale, schedule of the Jews, where, where the priest would enter the Holy of Holies and, and make atonement for their sins. And then uh, the 15th through the 22nd of the month of Tishri was the Feast of Booths. And, and so this was a, a very significant month. And, and, and it was a natural time then for them to have their first sacred assembly. And so, and so they all gathered together in this month. And, and verse 2 tells us that the leaders of the assembly are Jeshua and as well Zerubbabel. Now, now these guys are going to be really important uh, and, and, or through the end of Ezra chapter six, they are they are the leaders of this band, and and they're significant. Uh, first of all, because Jeshua is a, a rightful descendant to the priesthood; he is a descendant of the last priest uh, who who ruled or who 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 acted for the people of God before the destruction of Be- of Jerusalem. And and Zerubbabel, he is a descendant of David, and, and more specifically. Uh, He is a descendant of Jehoiakim, who was one of the last Davidic kings before the destruction of Jerusalem. So so these guys are really important. They have blood, and and they've got credibility with the people, and and they are going to take the lead in the chapters ahead. And the text tells us that they lead the nation in two monumental acts. First, it tells us in verses 2 and 3, that they restored the daily burnt offering. The daily burnt offering. Now now that might not seem like a big deal to us. But the burnt offering was the very foundation of Israel's worship. In fact, the law uh, commanded Israel that that every morning and every evening they were to offer a burnt offering. And they did so uh, to atone for their sins, and to maintain fellowship with God. So, so Israel's always sinning, right? And so every morning and every night, they offered a burnt offering uh, to atone for that sin. So, so the burnt offering, folks, I mean, this is the very foundation of Israel's relationship to God. But, but the text here tells us that, that before they could restore the burnt offering, well, they first had to have the right altar. And in the Bible, you know, the law is very clear. You couldn't just throw up a burnt offering anywhere. You had to have an appropriate altar. And specifically, they want to build this altar, it says in the text, on the same location, it says in verse 3, on the foundation of the previous altar. Now, that to us might not sound like that big of a deal. Like, go, clear space, build an altar. But Jeremiah 41, verse 5 tells us that after the destruction of Babylon, that the Samaritans had come in and they had built their own sacred altar on this exact site. So, so the Samaritans are the people that the Assyrians had brought in and they had kind of intermingled with some of the Jews who were left over in the northern kingdom. And they're not too far from Jerusalem and ancient peoples, you know, sacred sites are a big deal to them. So, so they had come down and they had built their own uh, altar and probably sacred monument on this exact same location. But the Jews knew that they couldn't just use that same altar. Because you can imagine that it was not built according to the standards of the law. And certainly it had not been used with, with, uh, according to the practices of the law, so it was impure. So this altar has to come down. Now, how do you think their neighbors are going to feel when they walk into Jerusalem and tear down their altar. Well, they're not going to be very happy about that. But the returnees were committed to obeying the Lord, and so they tore down that sacred site, and then verse 2 emphasizes the fact that they built a new altar, and notice what it says. It says they built the altar of God as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So so God emphasizes there, the text emphasizes there, that they followed the law precisely. And it connects it to Moses. This is not just a pile of rocks with a fire in the middle. I mean, this is the altar of Moses, the man of God. And then for the very first time in, in roughly 50 years, they offered a true burnt offering to the Lord. Now again, you know, we, you know, to us, well, what's the big deal? I mean, just having a barbecue. But, but, folks, because this is a, a, a massive significance to the Israelites, because the burnt offering was the foundation of their relationship to God. You know, and that's because, like us, they were sinners, and the Bible teaches that sin creates a barrier between man and God. So, so, so man cannot come near to God or come near to His blessing without some kind of cover. And so God had graciously instituted the sacrificial system. You know, I mean, we, we tend to look at the Old Testament law and we think, man, what a pain to do all that stuff and to go through all that mess. But, but folks, it was a gracious gift of God to, to atone for sin, or, or you could say to cover their sin, so that they could have a relationship with God, so that they could fellowship with Him. Now, now I want to be clear here today that they were not saved by offering these sacrifices. So so the Bible is clear that, that in every age, the only way that anyone will get to heaven is through the blood of Christ on the cross. That is the only sacrifice that allows someone into heaven, and the only way that we receive the benefit of that is through faith in Christ. So so they weren't offering these sacrifices in order to earn their way to God. And it was just as true. So just so they're saved the same way that we are. But 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 what but what the Bible also teaches is that even after I am saved, sin limits my ability to have a relationship with God. So so God gave Israel sacrifices. So, so that they could continue to draw near to Him and, and worship Him and enjoy the grace of His presence. And, and you know, all of that is, is, a, is a powerful object lesson for us about the seriousness of sin. You know, we need to be careful that we don't you know, romanticize what it was like to offer these sacrifices. When you got this crazy lamb and they grab him and they slit his throat and you know, he's still... You know, flailing around, there's blood everywhere. I mean, these sacrifices were, were violent and, and dirty. And, uh, and it's all a reminder to us that sin is not a small thing. It is terribly offensive to God, and it must be accounted for. And you know, all of it should ultimately make us incredibly grateful that Jesus provided the once-for-all sacrifice when He died on the cross for our sins. And John one twenty nine says of Jesus that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we should be thankful today on this side of the cross that there is no longer any need for sacrifice. We are not offering a burnt offering to the Lord in our service today. And I'm glad that we don't have to do that. No, no, all of us Now all I have to do to be saved is put my trust in what Jesus did on the cross as fully sufficient to save my soul. And once I trust in Christ, once I am in Him and His righteousness is imputed to me, I can simply rest in the finished work of Christ and know that my soul is safe in Him. And so if there's anyone here today that you have never received Christ as your Savior, You understand that just like those Israelites, your sin creates a barrier between you and God. And there is a need for something to cover it. And you will never cover it on your own. Our our only hope of salvation is in Christ. And if you are in Him, your sin is covered in the blood of Christ, and you can be right with Him. And so if you have never received Him as Savior, I hope that today you will, you will talk with us or you'll just pray right there in your seat and say, Lord, I repent of my sin. Forgive me for how I have broken your will. I trust in you. And you can leave knowing that your soul is safe in Jesus. So do that today. And, and returning to the text, so, so restoring this, this burnt offering, and this is a big deal for the Jews. A big deal. And yet, I don't want us to miss the fact that that it was not easy. All right? I mean, notice the note at the beginning of verse 3. It says, so they set up the altar on its foundations. It says, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. So so that's the first hint at an important theme as we work our way through Ezra and then into Nehemiah, that, that the other peoples in the region were fiercely resistant to every step that the Jews took to rebuild their worship and their national identity. I mean, they saw every act that they took to to rebuild their their worship system, to rebuild their city, they saw all of that as a threat to them, and you could say even as an act of war. And that would be terrifying if you're the Jews, right? Because there's not that many of you. You don't even have a single harvest in in your bins yet. And you don't have defenses, you don't have swords and shields and spears. So ticking off your neighbors is, is not an ideal way to secure your safety. And yet, so so it would be tempting to think well, you know, we probably should just hold off a while on worship. Like, let's get settled, let's get through our first harvest, let's build some forts and build some towers. And then we'll worship God once we know that we can resist our neighbors. But, but instead, notice uh, again the, the logic of that statement in verse 3. It says, they set up the altar on its foundation for or because they were terrified. So in other words, you know it's not like their terror said, well, let's back off. They instead said, we are in danger and therefore we must worship God. It is more important that we have God on our side than it is that we have our neighbors on our side. They needed God more than they needed diplomacy. And to take it a step further, they needed God more than they needed to rebuild their homes or to plant their fields. They were determined to worship God even if it came at great personal cost because they understood that worship matters. And then verses 4 through 6 add that they took it a step further by reinstituting the festival calendar. And and it it mentions a few things here, specifically, uh, first of all, it mentions the Feast of Booze. And and again, the Feast of Booze uh, took place on days 15 through 22 uh, of the seventh month, the month of Tishri. And uh, it was one of three pilgrimage feasts that the law required, so... So there were three times a year where every uh, male in Jerusalem, every man, was uh, was required to appear in Jerusalem, and this was one of them. So so this was a very important festival. And it was also a a festival that would be very significant to to the returnees, considering their situation. And that's because the Feast of Booths was, was, was designed by God to help the Jews forever remember their journey From Egypt into the promised land so the way they would do this is that they would all come to Jerusalem and they would build these little very primitive uh, rudimentary huts and they would take branches and sticks and other things they would build these little little tents so to speak these little huts and they would live in them for seven days and then afterwards uh, they would come out and, and all of it was intended to remind them of what God had done in bringing them out of Egypt That they had left Egypt and then they had lived in tents for 40 years. But then finally, they made it to Israel. And they got to put away their tents and live in homes. And of course, it's not hard to see how the returnees would identify with that. Because they had been in captivity too. And then they had endured a long trip. Now, it wasn't 40 years. It was probably only four months or so, but it was a long trip. And now they were home. And so verse 4 notes that they worshipped God by, by observing this feast, offering sacrifices. And I don't want us to miss that note at the end of verse 4. That they did all of this according to the ordinance as each day required. So, so they're, they're worshipping. They're very careful. You know, They're not just flying by the seat of their pants. You know, kind of, nah. All right, let's do it the way we think. They are very careful to do this exactly the way God had said. And then verses 5 and 6 add that they followed by reinstituting the entire schedule of daily and monthly and annual festivals. So so they didn't wait for a convenient time. You know, when when they've got lots of livestock and lots of food and everything is is all hunky-dory. No, they didn't wait to be established economically or militarily. No, oh, they prioritized worship even if it came at great personal costs. And they followed the law. You know, They didn't think, you know, hey, when we were in Babylon, they did this really cool thing at the Marduk temple. And so let's put a little bit of that in our worship. And they didn't say, you know, we could really keep the Samaritans off our back if we just do a few things like they do and mix it in with what the law says. Because then, you know, we'd all get along and everyone would be happy. No, no. instead, the text repeatedly emphasizes that they did everything precisely as God had demanded. And you know, that's a good reminder to us that, that worship is not fundamentally about expressing myself. That, that's something that our culture really values, is expressing yourself. And, and worship is not uh, fundamentally about what I like or what is convenient to me. No, no, I mean, ever since the, the, the Protestant Reformation a Protestants have, have emphasized what we call the regulative principle of worship, which means that we don't base our tradition off of, or base our worship off of traditions and, and, and church creeds and church fathers. We go to the Bible and we see what the Bible says God demands for worship. And if the Bible doesn't tell us to do it, we don't do it. We do what the Bible says to worship God. Because worship is not fundamentally about me. It is about Him. We we want to please Him in our worship. So so our worship must be obedient, holy, and God-centered. Now, of course, from there, of course, we we adapt to our setting. We, We adapt to the people we're trying to reach. But our worship is always first about God. So, so, so verses 1 through 6 here, folks, I mean, they're a big deal. These people take an incredibly difficult step of faith by, by prioritizing their worship. And it didn't matter to them what it cost them economically or, 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 or if it ticked off their neighbors. They had to worship God. And in the process, they achieved an incredible victory. And these verses say that they restored the very foundations of the worship that Moses had instituted at Mount Sinai, so this is a big deal, but, but the text tells us that they're not done yet. Now, now not only did they restore mosaic worship verses seven through thirteen add that they also res- began restoring solomon's temple and so verse seven says that, that after they, they probably after the seventh month after they go through all these feasts that they, they begin setting up contracts with Masons and carpenters. Of course, they they need people that can work with stone uh, to build a building like they did back then. They didn't have cement and concrete. And they also need carpenters to work with wood. And so they hire these people. And as well, verse 7 mentions, that they sent food, drink, and oil to Tyre and Sidon to provide them with cedar wood. Now, now that's important for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, if you're going to build a large building... Uh, you can't build it out of you know, brushwood, right? You can't build it out of uh, you know, some cheap, small, little piece of wood. You, you need big, large, sturdy, uh, high-quality lumber. Uh, but, what, but second, and, and what is particularly important, is if you know your Bible, what previous story in the Scriptures does verse 7 remind you of? Well, the language here clearly reflects that of 1 Kings chapter 5, which describes how when Solomon prepared to build the first temple, he talked to Hiram, king of Tyre, and, and he made a contract with him, and, and he sent food reserves up to uh, Lebanon and, and worked out a contract with him. And so, and so both Solomon and the returnees bought lumber with food supplies, and they milled wood up in Lebanon and then they, they floated it down the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa where it was then a drug across the land up to Jerusalem. So, so once again, the author wants to draw a parallel between, between the returnees and Israel's past. You know, this is not just a building project. This is not just about doing a job. I mean, they are rebuilding Solomon's temple. The most important building in Israel's religion. And again, this is the place, because and it's so important because again, this is the place where they received atonement. This is the place where they met with God. This is the place they worshipped Him and rejoiced in His blessings. And folks, all of God's blessings to Israel, all of them, were centered in the temple. I mean, the thing that made Israel different was that God was in their midst in that temple. And so they get to work. And it's not just the center of religious life. it's the center of their political life, their economic life. I mean, everything comes together in this temple. So so this temple is a very big deal. And therefore, verse 8 says that in the second month of the second year, after the return, they go to work rebuilding. So, So again, they had this first big assembly in the first year, seventh month. So now it's been about seven months later, and and they begin to build. And and that makes a lot of sense uh, for a few reasons. Uh, First of all, uh, the Passover takes place in the first month. So so they wouldn't want to start the building project and then stop for the Passover. As well, uh, it's significant because they would have just finished their first harvest. So harvest would take place uh, right there at at around the first uh, month of the year, so they finished their harvest, and, um, and, and so they're now heading into the dry season. So you can't do much farming when there's no rain, so it's a good time to focus on building. And then as well, I think it's worth mentioning, that the second, the second month is also when Solomon began building his temple. So the crops are in, all right? That's probably a big deal. I mean, I'm sure they're really grateful to, to have a harvest, and... Um, And Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they organize their labor force under the direction of the Levites, and they get to work. And verse 9 emphasizes the fact that they all stood united and began working. And verse 10 says that they worked until they had repaired the foundation of the temple. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to us. Like, man, all they did was build a floor. Whoop-dee-doo. But, of course, there's probably lots of rubble there, right? Because the first temple was huge. And there's probably a lot of just stuff around that needs to be taken out. And Of course, then they've got to look at the old foundation and see, well, this stone is in good shape. We can keep that one. Or we've got to pull this one out and start over. And, and so they've got the masons and they're, they're very carefully working to make sure this foundation is in order to put a very heavy and large structure on top of it. And, and so they work and, and they work and they work and they persevere through the hot summer until the foundation of the temple is complete. And then, uh, verses 10 and 11 say that once they had finished the foundation, they once again held a sacred assembly to worship God and give thanks for His blessing. And let's just read uh, verses 10 and 11 again. It says, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites... The sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So, so just imagine. You know, thousands of people, they're they're all standing there on on the the foundation of the temple and the courtyard that's all there. They're singing to the Lord. They're praising Him. And, and, and once again, we need to emphasize that, that it mimics that the celebrations of Israel's past. So, so specifically, uh, the celebration that Solomon held when, when he dedicated the first temple. Now, this is on a lot smaller scale, right? I mean, A, the temple's not even finished. All they've done... is is lay the foundation. And of course, as well, uh, there's only a fraction of the people there that that were surely present when Solomon dedicated his temple. They they didn't have nearly as many animals. I mean, Solomon offered thousands of sacrifices and and had a huge show with with lots of music and all sorts of pomp and circumstance. So, So all of this is on a much smaller, simpler scale. But it's still... The priests put on their priestly garments. The text says they pulled out the trumpets and the cymbals. So they've got musical instruments here. The sons of Asaph, they were the the choir people that that David David had organized the sons of Asaph to be the singers in in Israel in the the temple worship. So so the the sons of Asaph get together to sing. And and the text emphasizes they did all of this according to the direction of of King David of Israel. So, so again, they're connecting their present with their past. They wanted to honor God, and they wanted to connect what they were doing to God's great works before. And then verse 11 says, it says, They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel Forever. And again, those lines uh, actually are exactly the same lines uh, that we see sung when, when Solomon dedicated his temple. So, so these people realize that, that God is doing something great. You know, they look around and, and they were not, it was not impressive, right? I mean, most of Jerusalem is still just a pile of trash. There's not very many people. From a human perspective, it's like, what's the big deal? But they saw that God was doing something great. And they realized their connection to their past, and so they glorified God for all that He had done, and they worshipped Him. In fact, verse 13 says that they were so loud that that you could be heard far away. So the sound of of this celebration echoed throughout the region. So it was a great day. Now now next week we're going to see in chapter 4, that noise is going to create some problems for them. Because the neighbors are going to hear it. And they're not going to like it. And and so problems are ahead. But they don't care. They are thankful and they are worshiping God. So so it was a great day. And yet the chapter ends with, with a sobering reality check. I mean, look again at what it says in verses 12 and 13. It says, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted along, aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So again, it had been uh, right around fifty years since the first temple had been destroyed. So there are some people that are there that they actually are old enough to remember that the previous temple. And um, as they look at the foundation of this new temple, these people, it was obvious to them that this new temple was not going to be anywhere near the glory and the size and the beauty of the first one. And so the text says that they loudly grieve over everything that was lost, and over all that God's judgment had done to the nation. I mean, they are wailing. Now now that sounds kind of weird to us, because men in our culture, we do everything possible to avoid wailing loudly. Like, like all your man cards disappear the moment you start to just wail, right? So, so we don't do that much. But, but in, their, in Eastern cultures, it's very common for, for men to, to wail loudly, to make, Lots of noise as they cry. And so they're wailing here. And and the text tells us it creates a confusing tension. So on the one hand, some people are shouting with joy. And on the other hand, other people are wailing over all that has been lost. And and the text says that the people could not distinguish one from the other. And, and, And that note brilliantly captures the complexity of this moment because Israel has regained so much and yet they have there's so much that they haven't regained there is incredible joy at what God has done but there's also great sorrow i mean they are excited about the future and yet they are surrounded by hostile enemies and they are poor they are weak and they are very small and to go back to my introduction God has called these people to do something very hard, very costly, and very risky. And the challenges are only going to increase in chapters 4-6. through It is going to get harder before it gets easier. As their neighbors begin to push back, and as they even get the king of Persia to push back. But, But folks, worship matters. And so they persevered. They made sacrifices. They took risks because God was worth it. And God was pleased. God was faithful to them. He's not going to remove all the difficulty, but He will bless and keep His Word. So so let's just reflect for a moment here as we wrap up on, on what is the central message of this text, and particularly on our worship, both privately and publicly as a church. I believe the basic message of Ezra chapter 3 is that we must prioritize worship even when it is hard. We must prioritize worship even when it is hard. You know, we've seen, and we're going to continue to see, that these returnees were a tough, gritty group of people. and They made huge sacrifices and, and took big risks to worship God and to build His temple. And, and so they're... Examples should cause us all to look at ourselves and to ask, what does my life, what do my practices say about how I value both private and corporate worship? Do I reflect the the conviction and the drive of these people? Or am I flaky and, and hard to predict? Now, of course, you, you all know me well enough to know that I'm not saying that there are never valid reasons why, why we can't worship. Or and I'm not certainly not saying that, that we should develop some sort of legalistic view of worship where every time I read my Bible, every five minutes of prayer, and, and every time I come to church is a, a thousand bonus points with God, you know, cha-ching, every time I do that. That's not the point. But I am saying that, like these people, we should highly value the nearness of God. We should desperately desire His presence and grace in our lives. And the proof of how much I value the nearness of God is my actions. And I can't say, God means everything to me. And then I have no time for Him. So do I strive to honor God by obeying His will? By by doing things the way He said? And do I discipline myself even when it is hard to get in the Word, to get on my knees in prayer, and to be with His church? Now I want to challenge you, don't be a flaky Christian who only seeks the Lord and who only prioritizes the Lord when it's easy. You know, where, where a feather hits you in the head and, oh, I can't do it. No, be a mature believer. Be an adult Christian who does hard things because they matter. And folks, God matters. Worship matters because God matters. He is worthy of our worship, and He is the greatest need in your life. Psalm 73, 28 says, The nearness of God is my good. So, so, to go back to everything we've said today, I mean, we should rest in the finished work of Christ. Praise the Lord that we don't have to offer sacrifices like Israel did. But then we need to walk in holiness and in obedience to his will. And even when it is hard, risky, and inconvenient, spend time in his presence. And spend time in the word, spend time in prayer, worship with his people, live before him each day. Come to church and do all of it because you believe that God matters. Because you want to honor Him. And because there is nothing in your life that you desire more than to be near to your Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this text. And we thank You for the example of these people. And Father, I pray that You would make us a strong people of conviction who will follow You and obey You and serve You, whatever the cost. Because we want You more than we want anything else. And so work in us, I pray, to accomplish Your will. Lord, I pray if any who are here that do not know Jesus as Savior, Lord, we ask that today they would rest in the sacrifice of Jesus and be born again. And so, bless us, Lord. Work in our midst for Your glory. In Christ's name, amen.